0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a key strategy to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification Policy with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, looking for freedom from fossil fuels, decarbonizing the European Union. When Vladimir Putin sent Russian troops to invade Ukraine on February 24th for the second time in the past decade, it sent shockwaves throughout the world as yet another humanitarian crisis revealed the devastation of war and power-driven conflict. It also shone a spotlight once again on the true costs of the persistent global reliance on fossil fuels, with the European Union or the EU taking center stage. The EU's 27 members buy a quarter of their oil and more than 40 percent of their gas from Russia, which in effect is helping to fund Putin's war chest. Global oil prices are spiking due to constrained supplies and high demand, supply chain disruptions and a global energy market that kowtows to the highest bidders. And consumers are seeing fuel bills hit all-time highs. In response to these converging factors, policymakers, businesses, and consumers are asking what can be done to free the EU from its reliance on Russian gas and oil imports, while also still working towards necessary climate and clean energy goals. Because let's not forget that within a week of Putin's invasion, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC, released a new report saying that it is unequivocal that climate change has already disrupted human and natural systems and that the societal changes and actions taken within this decade will determine our collective climate resilience. In other words, if today's levels of greenhouse gas emissions do not rapidly decline and if 1.5 degrees C of warming is exceeded, the planet and all of its inhabitants will face an untenable future. So in light of all this, how does Europe reduce gas and oil use without adversely impacting consumers, while also making progress towards decarbonization goals? What immediate actions need to be taken versus longer-term paradigm shifts that must occur to avoid this in the future and ensure climate stability? Today, I'm joined by two energy policy experts well-versed in the dynamics of the European Union energy markets to explore these and other questions. First, we have Michaela Holl who's a senior associate at the Brussels Office of Independent Think Tank Agora Energy Wind, influencing the EU Green Deal and EU Clean Energy Policies. Prior to this, she worked as a policy analyst at the European Commission, the EU's executive arm for 16 years on a broad range of EU legislation from tobacco regulation to renewables and energy efficiency. She's also worked as an assistant to a member of the European Parliament, and she holds a master's degree in European economics from the College of Europe in Bruges and a diploma in international business and cultural studies. She's a visiting lecturer at the Technical University of Munich School on Governance and co host of the bi monthly What Matters podcast. Michaela, welcome to the pod.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: great to have you. And next, we have Jan Rosenau, who's a principal and director of European programs at the Regulatory Assistance Project and has several board appointments, including the European Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, Coalition for Energy Savings, and the Carbon Free Europe. Jan is also an honorary research associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute and has been appointed senior special advisor to the House of Commons Inquiry into decarbonizing heating. He's named one of the world's top 25 energy influencers and co-hosts with Michaela, the What Matters podcast. Mm-hmm. So Jan, welcome.
2: Thank you. And I just learned lots of things about Michaela, which I did not know. So thanks for the uh, uh, very elaborate introduction, Sarah.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, the thing I love about this show is I bring on guests that have very impressive backgrounds and expertise. So I always like to highlight what folks are doing out there. So we're going to dive in. There's so much to discuss here. But before we do, uh, just to give our listeners a little bit more background on what you each do at your respective uh, organizations, uh, we'd love to have you just kind of give a self-intro. So Jan, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do at the Regulatory Assistance Project?
2: Sure. I mean, our main mission really is to help policymakers and regulators to craft better, more effective, more efficient Legislation and regulation to drive the clean energy transition forward. That that has always been RAPs uh, core mission and still is RAPs core mission. But we also give advice and assistance to advocates, uh, to industry representatives with the similar aim. You know, we, we believe in, in innovation and good ideas in the policy space to advance the transition, and we would share those ideas with anyone. Um, so that's our kind of core mission, and we work on a range of sectors, the power sector, as you might have guessed, but also building sector and the transport sector, and increasingly we pay attention uh, to the gas transition as well, which is a topic I know Michaela is also very interested in.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, I've known uh, RAP for quite some time and they're an excellent organization doing great work uh, across the world. Uh, Michaela, how about yourself? What what are you doing today in your current role at Agora? Yeah,
1: I guess RAP is more known with your U.S. no, with your US audience, but Agora in a given is a, a very similar animal as Jan just described. Huh? Uh, so the same mission, huh? to really... Help policymakers, uh, you know, uh, feed them with, with the evidence and, uh, and prepare feasible solutions. Um, and AGO has, and even it started in Germany, but we now also really look at the EU, uh, at the whole range that Jan just described of EU legislation. Uh, you might know the EU before COP26, we came with a really new ambition for climate change reduction. Uh, and that has translated basically into legislative review across the board, you know, starting from standards to cars to gas market. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, the, so basically we are following uh, these discussions, which at, as we all know, were now, you know, it was already a lot to be discussed before, but now with the new development since the invasion of Ukraine, got a whole new urgency and a whole new, you know became even more challenging
0: yeah absolutely um, so you know to that very point, uh, certainly there has been an increased spotlight on the European Union's reliance on oil and gas, uh, both in the context of the inflated prices as well as more specifically the Russian attack on ukraine and um, you know I think n- nobody myself included really f- realized how much uh, energy was being imported from Russia. And in one opinion article you actually both co-authored on this topic, you point to the fact that the EU Commission's strategy to really address these concurrent factors alongside climate change isn't really doing enough. Um, so can one of you talk a little bit about uh, what the EU Commission
2: proposed
0: and some of the shortcomings that you see with the proposed strategy? And Jan, maybe I'll I'll start with you.
2: We're happy to make a start. I mean, when we wrote the article, um, this was a while back now. Um, yeah. this was before the uh, war uh, yeah. started, and it was also before the response paper came out from the Commission uh, that was published in, in March. So, um, just having to kind of just clarify that, I guess, because what we said in the article was was very much um, uh, you know, addressing uh, the discussion at the time. Um, so the, 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 I guess what we identified as what, what is what is really absent is a much clearer um, positioning of the role of decarbonized gases in the discussion, um, because there's kind of one argument that goes, we could just replace uh, fossil gas with renewable gases uh, or other low carbon gases um, and essentially not reduce the amount of gas use overall, uh, whereas the other argument, perspective is that we will fuel switch Um, we will use more electricity in end users, and we will reduce gas consumption quite dramatically and that is um, essentially the the position the commission has taken in previous strategy documents but what we pointed out in the article is that there's a disconnect between the high level perspective on gas which is actually quite good and the commission for example, in what is called the energy sector integration strategy or in the hydrogen strategy, uh, has pointed out very clearly is that electrification, energy efficiency um, are the key solutions in many areas. And, and you know, replacing gas with gas will play some role, but it's not going to be the first um, option. Um, and, and what we criticize in our piece really is that there um, is so far yet um, uh, you know, to, to, be, to be developed, a, a, a kind of policy package that delivers on that, and uh, what's being proposed by the commission uh, in the gas market package um, is is not going far enough, and, and looks like um, more of uh, you know, the same old recipes. Michaela, um, did I get that right? Uh, it's a while back now that we wrote this piece. Is, I know, is, is that, yeah, it was on, on the 22nd right?
1: of February, I think, that it came out, so important that you said said that because I guess if one were to read it now, you know, after everything that has happened. Um no, you 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 put it right. I mean in the end, you know, what we did was we it's a call electrify this, you know, because um uh we saw a little bit you know to the first invasion 2014 was already a little bit of a shock and then the EU kind of concluded, ooh maybe we should look a little bit at our dependency, but at the end it, we basically increased the impen- independence. and you said at the beginning, ma- maybe it was not even clear to everyone just how dependent we are. I mean, in some countries, uh, they are almost 100% dependent on Russian gas imports. Germany is very dependent as one of the countries which also explains some of the, um, you know, some of the uh, some some of the events happening now and their positioning. Um, uh, Yeah, no, I think uh, our article did age well because what happened since made this argument even stronger. Um, Like there is a need for systemic change and I think that's actually also something that was very overlooked in the IPCC report of last week. That Really, they said... um, we need a new approach also to, you know, uh, how we are dealing with fossil infrastructure and those investments. And, uh, um, yeah, uh, I guess that's the point we were making, that, uh, you know, improving incrementally a little bit is not doing it anymore. It wasn't doing it for decarbonization, and it will most certainly not help with the other challenge that we set ourselves to wean ourselves of the Russian gas.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and I think there's... Kind of generally a sense that we have the luxury of time to deal with all of it we have the time to get off oil and gas we have the time to deal with climate and uh, you know with the IPCC report as you mentioned um, they made very uh, clear abundantly clear that our time is uh, shrinking and we we really need to peak um, you know fossil fuel emissions in 2025 which is by my watch just a handful of years away and that's yeah. a that's a huge uh, wake up call, hopefully. Um, I want to dig into the to the efficiency piece and the electrification piece, but before we do, i want to just quickly ask you you mentioned Jan that some of the proposals were focused on the notion of replacing existing fossil gas with quote unquote renewable gas alternatives. Um we also are seeing that a lot here in the US. A lot a big push from a lot of utilities claiming that they will, you know, replace kind of on a one-to-one basis the existing mm-hmm. gas with renewable gas or hydrogen. Uh what are your thoughts on the, the feasibility and or limitations of that as a uh a solution?
2: Look, I think when it comes to uh, hydrogen or biogas or any other um, form of so-called low-carbon gases, we should just apply the same principles for uh, you know, deciding whether or not an application is sensible or not. Um, and by, by by that, I mean you know, we should look at the cost effectiveness, um, the ability to reduce emissions, affordability for, for consumers, uh, impacts on on um, uh, just you know, equity and and distributional impacts. So we we just apply the same principles that that we would apply to any other uh, technology or proposal and. When you do that, you find very quickly that in many sectors there are better alternatives. Um, clearly, you know, there are applications where we will need hydrogen, where we will need biogas as long as it is produced sustainably and, and has the you know, emission reduction effects that we that we need to see. But there are a lot of sectors, uh, for example, the building sector, but also a significant part of the transport sector where direct electrification coupled with energy efficiency measures um, are just more cost-effective and uh, will uh, result in lower costs for the energy system as a whole and for consumers. Um, And therefore, we should be cautious, in my view, um, and I know Michaela shares that view, um, when we talk about just replacing uh, fossil gas like for like uh, with with other gases. Um, And that is... I think a view that is widely shared. When you look at the IPCC report that uh, you just just mentioned, um, that is very clear that the share of hydrogen, for example, and biogas in uh, those sectors will be very low. Um, yeah, the main application we see for hydrogen is in the industry sector, um, specifically where hydrogen is already being used as feedstock. Um, you know, where we currently use. Mm-hmm gray hydrogen from fossil gas or even black hydrogen from coal that needs to be replaced with green hydrogen. Uh, and there will be other applications too. And then maybe in the power sector, you know, to solve that conundrum of um, long-term storage um, and, you know, those periods where you have low winds, not a lot of sun, um, but a lot of energy demand, that's where hydrogen could potentially play a role. And we could discuss that in a bit more detail perhaps later. Uh, on the podcast, but we don't see a a huge role for hydrogen in heating. We don't see hydrogen cars being used. Um, The the adoption uh, of that technology will remain very, very limited. Um, So we we should be um, just mindful of the alternatives before we jump uh, into a strong support um, policy for hydrogen in those sectors, I believe.
1: I think the challenge is... um to uh, to, uh, to see that, that that gas will play a different role in the future. It was like the all-purpose fuel, you know. It was in our homes for cooking, and it was everywhere, and the industry used it. And, of course, that's nice and convenient. Um, and then, okay, then the first reflex is, um, yeah, maybe we can replace it with burning bio and to have it as the same role. But these things will not take us all way. Uh, we will have to see that basically the bulk of the work is being done by cutting energy waste, by electrifying based on renewables, and then the last twenty percent will be served by those gases and molecules. And I think that's the that's the that's what have, what has to be achieved. And obviously, you can imagine uh, that yeah, um, there's vested interests who use this, obviously, yeah, understandably, they want to perpetuate their business model and, and be part of the solution. Uh, so that, that, that is the, the, the context of the whole thing
0: yeah absolutely. and I think we could have a whole a whole podcast devoted to that topic in and of itself, and likely will be one of our future episodes. Um, shifting gears just a little bit so the international Energy Agency uh, issued a report uh, shortly after the invasion of of Ukraine titled a ten point plan to reduce the eu 's reliance on Russian natural gas. Uh, what are some of the more promising recommendations that you see in that plan and are there any that you think have shortcomings and Michaela I'll start with you
1: mm. actually if I may I would slightly um, half respond to your question sure. because actually just today <laughs> the IEA it's interesting as development I think and it will then also indirectly answer your question the IEA and the European Commission together had an event Um how can I be part of this endeavor to save energy? And just today, a few hours ago, issued a paper with recommendations. What can people do? And what I find interesting is that somehow, because uh, what what Jan and I criticized before, um, or also was uh, in the Commission's original strategy so far, this dimension of you know, behavioral change and uh, adapting consumption was not so much there. Mm -hmm. You know, there was not so much dishonesty to say, well, maybe we have to get used to these higher prices. Maybe this was just an exceptional period. It wasn't there. And so what I appreciated today was this joint IEA, uh, European Commission uh, paper, and they came again with new 10 recommendations Mm. which make all a lot of sense like don't use your car try not to take the plane um you know lower your 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 temperature and as the iea i think they do good communication work how they said minus one degree in all of our buildings is 10 bcm which is really which shows you that these small things matter so very interesting so that happened today but they recycled basically what you refer to the 10 point plan for gas. And then there was the 10 point plan for oil. And now it was kind of republished consumer friendly. You know, what can I do? Which I think is a nice, nice take.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I am I just pulled it up. Um, Chris, you're on a different time zone. So you're ahead <laughs> of me <laughs> in the news cycle. Uh, but it's, you know, it says the press release The header says energy saving actions by EU citizens could save enough oil to fill 120 super tankers and enough natural gas to heat 20 million homes. So that's substantial. I mean, those are not small numbers, um, especially in the context of everything else we're trying to accomplish. That's great. Yeah, I'll have to dig okay. into that. We'll, we'll post well, a link to Not this. only you
1: have a different time zone, you apparently get also a different press release <laughs> if you haven't seen that
0: yet. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, who knows what that's all about. Um, well, that's great. So, and, and I, you know, really appreciate the bringing to my attention that that was just released. Uh, certainly, the, the role of the consumer in all of this is critical because demand does not just magically happen. It's driven by human beings and industry and businesses. So actions in all of those spaces clearly matter. Um, going back a little bit to the 10-point the plan, though, on the drive to reduce reliance on Russian natural gas and beyond the consumer actions, uh, they had a a number of recommendations that they outlined in that plan. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on which jump out at you as being some of the most promising.
2: Yeah, um, I've actually looked at the 10-point plan from the IEA and also the European Commission's uh, energy strategy document that came out uh, shortly after I think it was a couple of weeks after the, the IEA document came out. And it's very obvious from both documents that you know there is a um, significant chunk of moving away from Russian gas imports that's essentially diversifying supply, mainly LNG um, from other countries, uh, including the U.S., but also Qatar and, 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 and other countries. Um, and then... There's a sort of short term which you already discussed, the behavioral response, which comes out as pretty significant, as 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 uh, Michaela said, 10 BCM out of I think 151 BCM of imports, which is a huge amount. Um, but of course, we don't know to what extent people would actually do it. Right? This is this is merely a, a kind of hypothetical scenario, with which the IA is. Setting out. So if everybody participated, if everybody turned down the thermostat by one degree, that's what you would get in terms of savings. And the IEA's own research, you know, from many years ago, there was a paper called Saving Electricity in a Hurry by I think Alan Meyer from uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, um, which is a great paper, by the way. And but that, that paper shows that the persistence of behavioral campaigns when you ask people to change their consumption and ration the energy use is not going to be years. It's more, um, you know, maybe weeks, months, perhaps a couple of years at the most. Uh, But it's not a structural change to the the fundamental problem, which is the over-reliance on technologies that are dependent on using fossil fuels and and fossil gas imports from, from Russia. So the more promising elements, to come back to your question, in, uh, um, in, in the, the two documents um, are certainly around scaling up energy efficiency, um, scaling up the deployment of heat pumps, which is called out in both cases as quite prominently. I think the commission is calling for doubling doubling um, uh, of, of the deployment rate. I think the IEA is saying something very similar. Um, and and then more renewables. I mean, in the power sector, uh, there's a direct replacement of gas fire generation with renewables that is possible if we go faster, especially on solar, but also on wind. Um, so those are, I think, the kind of key uh, solutions that are being mentioned in both documents that would in the long term reduce gas consumption very significantly. And that is actually what, um, Michaela's organization, Agora Energiewende, but also, also RAP, um, uh, and in, in uh, collaboration with three other NGOs, uh, Ember, E3G, and Bellona ha- have said in, in, in their briefings uh, that we should really focus on that rather than get too distracted by uh, your LNG terminals, imports, diversifying supply, um, or the short-term behavior response, even though that is an important yeah, aspect in the short term, but we should really focus on the more medium to, and long term measures to move away from this heavy reliance on the fossil fuel imports. Yeah,
1: it's of course easy to say if you're not, you know, if you're not. I, I mean, you see, you know when 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 the heads of states in Europe or also from the European Commission speak at the moment, of course they are in crisis mode because. It could happen any day that we have the full embargo. It's we are we are we are in the luxury, Jan and me and here in our organizations, that indeed um, you know, we, we said, okay, we focus on the structural change because we think it should, you know, this is important in a discussion. And you know, if for example you look at wind, I think the US also just starts to gear up because you had only at the moment one or two states. But I from what I've seen, I mean there's this takes time. Mm-hmm. Wind development and the, the the grid development. These things take time. So you have mm-hmm. to start also not today. Mm-hmm. It, you know, we want so much renewables by 2030. These things should not be forgotten. Um, so that that was the focus we took. And and what's also always important, I think, in a, in a discussion is um, re- to really be clear. Like in particular, the gas issue is an issue for heating. Very often people confuse this and, you know, and come back to, yeah, but why don't the Germans go back to nuclear? Um, The gas uses in industry and in heating Mm -hmm. uh, to make these things also clear. Um,
0: Yeah, that's a really important point of clarification. And those who really understand energy markets know that difference, but those that are sort of paying attention more peripherally may not know where each – uh, you know, each supply is going to which demand and how that factors into the solution set. So really important clarification. Um, I'm curious to hear from you both. So you both flagged electrification, obviously, is one of the longer term solutions we need to be driving faster towards. Um, here in the U.S., we have a number of barriers and challenges to electrification, but it is starting to gain momentum. I'm curious to get both of your thoughts on what are the main things that have to change in the EU to really ramp up the adoption of uh, not just heat pumps, but also uh, electric vehicles um, as, as a core solution set?
2: Um, I, I mean, it, the situation has really changed quite a bit. Um, so what, I, what I'm going to say... Um, is, is probably no longer quite as relevant as it used to be. But historically, um, a key barrier was that fossil fuels were quite cheap um, and plentiful, whereas the alternatives were often more expensive. Um, and, you know, electricity um, was covered, or it still is covered by emissions trading. We have the emission, European Emissions Trading System that puts a pretty high price uh, on on carbon from electricity generation. Now it's it's been around 100 euros per ton. Uh, you know, historically that used to be a lot lower. There were there were times where it was less than five euros per ton. It's now uh, about twenty times higher. Um, so th- that that's kind of one one thing. And that didn't apply, for example, to heating fuels. You know, heating fuels were not covered um, by any form of carbon pricing in most countries. There are exceptions, but the vast majority of countries did never apply a carbon price to heating fuels. Um, and in the transport sector, the situation was a little bit better because um, you know, petrol and diesel are taxed heavily already um, in, in Europe, in most countries. And you could already see some, some savings if you switch to an electric vehicle. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is that electricity, the fuel that we want to you know encourage people to use more of um, to the extent actually that the projections are that we've got to double uh, maybe even triple electricity demand in europe um, powered by renewables primarily um in you know sort of 10 15 years time which is a huge uh, challenge for us uh, and you know, requires a lot of investment um so that there, there's been this disincentive um, to use electricity uh, which' we're standing in the way of electrification uh, and also energy savings you know if if um if you're using uh, gas oil Coal and it's cheap, then you know, a lot of energy efficiency measures wouldn't necessarily pay back um, over a short uh, period of time. Um, yeah, you may think of um, external insulation of walls of buildings, which is an expensive um, undertaking and makes a lot of sense, but it's it's not going to pay back quickly if if you pay very little for the fuels that are being burned uh, to de- generate the heat in the building. Uh, that is now fundamentally changed, um, but we don't know for how long. You know, The, the prices of um, all fossil fuels are up um, significantly. Electricity's prices are up as well, but overall, the economics have shifted in favor of heat pumps, in favor of electric vehicles, because the fossil fuels are so much more expensive now. But we don't know how long that will persist. Um, so that's kind of one big barrier you know the economics and that needs to be addressed and the commission is trying to do that to give them credit um you know there is a proposal on the table to extend the emissions trading system to both transport and heating fuels which would you know incentivize people to switch um to electric vehicles and heat pumps for example Um, but it's very contested and maybe michaela can comment on that a bit, bit more it's 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 a very uh, it's a hot potato, right? It's 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 a sort of thing that it gets passed around, and, and and no one really wants to touch it because it's a really difficult issue politically, um, and um, yeah, especially currently with prices going up. You know, do you really want to add a carbon price when the gas prices are already going through the roof? Is that is that the right thing to do? Um, I, and the I, important I the elections the
1: take place in France and elsewhere, right. and you don't want to communicate with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So, are incentives being considered um you know versus the stick or, or is there discussion around maybe giving greater incentives for heat pump adoption or e v adoption?
2: Yes, I mean the again, it's useful to look at um things that we we have been doing and should stop doing that actually are counterproductive in yeah you know, until recently uh, in the majority of European countries, there were subsidies available. To buy a more efficient fossil fuel heating system. Um, There were subsidies available in some cases to buy a new car, the internal combustion engine car that is a little bit more efficient. Um, uh, You may think of hybrids, for example. Um, And clearly that is not what we want to encourage people to do. You know, we don't want them to install a new fossil fuel heating system, even oil. Until recently, you could get subsidies in Germany, for example, for a new oil boiler. Um, yeah that that really needs to stop so instead of funding more efficient fossil fuel heating systems we sh- we should reallocate those public funds in my view and pay for what really needs to be incentivized um you know more efficient district heating systems heat pumps um these kinds of things energy efficiency um the good news is that that conversation is happening so we have um uh, again, several proposals on the table from the Commission, but also from uh, national governments to, to do exactly that, um, to stop funding fossil fuel um, technologies and move away from that and instead using those those funds um, to incentivize the technologies that are kind of compatible with the climate goals. So that's really good to see. There's also, I mean, this is more stick, uh, a discussion about uh, regulatory bans in several countries, both for internal combustion engine vehicles, um, yeah, you know, there are hard um, regulatory bans in place now that will come come in in you know, 2030, 2035, differs depending on where you are in Europe. Uh, and the same is now being discussed uh, for heating systems. So we're getting to a to a better place in the discussion, but it's it's really difficult because um, it it interferes with you know, choices that um, people make. And until recently. Actually, there were even subsidies um, for some of those choices that we now tell people they shouldn't be making.
1: I would dare to say in the transport sector, we got a little bit of help from America also to electrify. I would say, no, there were were, um, public, uh, you know, uh, the, the authorities that checked, that did a thorough job, Helped us checking the real life emissions of our cars. And then there was Elon Musk basically, you know, putting the market upside down and really speeding up things, I would say. So they are actually, I think by now we are on a good track. And yeah, as Jan just said, even you know, end of combustion engine on the table. But in the heating sector, it was really, it was this conundrum of you know having gas as the main supply. Uh, You know, I I still, I think with heat pumps, we're a little bit like we were five years ago with electric cars. You know, it could actually, there could be a wave building up if we now use it cleverly. But um, there's a lot of political pressure because the prices are so high and also for industry to basically cap the prices, uh, you know. And so... uh, yeah, it's these kind of decisions that, that now have to be taken. Um, I mean, specifically, I don't know how it's in the US or in other countries, but, um, uh, in, you know, it's not known. I mean, we have wind and solar, but that's the electricity. But when it comes to renewables in the heating sector, it's almost all bioenergy. You know, so that's what it what, what 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 was done over the past 20 years. So here we really need to gear up. So that's a sector that really has to has to be. so I think Bian and I we were very happy to see for the first time, the commission talking about the heat pump target, because so far this was absent, you know, like at least it's there now. But, you know that was the hydrogen target, but I think it's very important to say, this is the technology we see. But well, it's not the only. We also have to work with district heating systems. But I think it's really important to have it as this aspirational target. I don't know. Does the U.S. have heat pump policies as well, and then in, in, in some states, or how is it?
0: Well, right now we do not have any federal uh, policy or incentive that's been under discussion over the last year. And uh, there's definitely hope that that will emerge. Um, as a policy here soon um, there are some states that incentivize uh, electrification and and some utilities as well but it's a relatively small uh, portion of the overall mix and as similar to in Europe uh, we've we've had long-standing incentives for highly efficient fossil fueled uh, equipment and that's been the kind of law of the land so we've we've really locked in a lot of um, infrastructure with with that policy so I think we're we're all kind of uh, grappling with similar challenges of how do you shift to new infrastructure um, without exacerbating costs and impacts on consumers. And yeah, no, no easy solution, but to the extent that the EU is looking at this as well as the U S at the same time, I think we can, you know, there's good learnings to be had. Um, You both have touched on the renewable energy in the EU and that clearly is going to play a bigger role, especially as we, as the EU um, electrifies more end uses and we, can't, we have to power those end uses with more renewable energy. We can't just double down on um, gas and coal. So what more is needed to support the deployment of, of even greater amounts of renewable energy and other carbon-free resources in the EU? I, I know that that's... a um we've long looked at the eu as you know kind of the leaders on renewable energy but i know that there are always challenges everywhere so I'm curious to get your thoughts on what's needed to to really ramp that up jan
2: i can i can try um <laughs> there's i mean there, there's there's if you look at it you could and that's what we've done recently to look at kind of what are the key barriers that slow down the deployment of renewables and um yeah, and and also the utilization of renewables um, uh, to to make sure we avoid curtailment. For example, we we still have fairly significant uh, curtailment of, of of renewables, and of course that's not something that we want to be um, doing if we can avoid it, because it's essentially um, you know, zero marginal cost electricity uh, and zero carbon. So if we curtail, we, we're throwing that away. But I mean, one one area that's being Discussed right now is is um, and this is not my core area of expertise. I have to say, but it's around planning and siting, and the the, the kind of process that's involved in um, identifying you know suitable sites and getting getting planning permission um, um, to 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 build offshore wind farms, um, you know, solar farms, uh, utility scale solar. Um, and, or even rooftop solar. You know, There are rules in member states that often make it quite difficult, um, slow things down. Um, and if we want to go much faster uh, and further on renewables, then we we, got, we need to be able to do um, these things in a more streamlined fashion um, to enable investments to happen um, and the de- build-up renewables to happen more quickly. Um, I mean, there are... Um, uh, of course uh, other barriers in, in, in addition to that and, and that is that we have also have a lot of legacy overcapacity of fossil generators in many member states um, You know, coal uh, and gas plants um, and if you have overcapacity then you know, the incentives to build um, more renewables capacity um, are lower um, and we do have capacity markets in Europe, I uh, you know you have them in the US as well um, Uh, And and, in Europe, in in, in many cases, most of the payments go to fossil generation. Um, um, And again, there are ways of 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 mitigating uh, some of those negative impacts uh, on renewables. Um, But yeah, it's 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 not easy. This is this is this is pretty complex, and there are a lot of moving pieces. Um, we're actually going to publish what we call a blueprint for a clean power uh, s- a system by 2035. Uh, we're going to publish that um, in the coming um, weeks, uh, which will actually look at ev- all of the different pieces. You know, energy markets, um, you know, the electricity grid, um, uh, y- y- the the tariff design. You know, what 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 is needed to actually make this. This work um, from a system perspective. So, we're going to publish that, and that will give you a much more comprehensive answer than what I can say in a few minutes on the podcast. But those are just a few areas you know, I wanted to highlight. Michaela, maybe you have some uh, complementary views having worked on this um, at the Commission as yeah. well. Uh, yeah,
1: what, what I. Oops. So, first of all, because you started by saying, oh, Europe, you have already so much wind and solar capacity. Um, well, we have uh, a share of uh, or how much is it in the electricity sector? Third, something like that. Uh, and basically, we, what the commission now just say, stated for in, in, in the recent strategy is we want to get to 900 gigawatt. And at the moment, I think we are somewhere 300 gigawatt, a bit above. So within the next eight years, we go to two and a half to three times more for solar and for wind. And that is a massive industrial program, if you think about it. Um, So we had a lot already, but, um, okay, there were also birthing problems. You know, the first generation of solar was very expensive, and that has, you know, there's some prejudices in some parts of Europe uh, on not wanting that anymore, even though now they are costly. You have have to overcome this opposition. Uh, on onshore wind I mean if you look at uh, okay UK is no longer in Europe but they <laughs> they just published their strategy and you see they don't even dare to touch onshore wind hmm. uh, because no one wants it hmm. um, so these are really these are really issues that need to be addressed uh, and you find them in one way or another in different uh, ways uh, so it's like you know, when you come from your experts and you see this m- amazing cost reductions in with these technologies while the costs of everything else go up. But there is, um, there's other blockages, mental blockages. Mm-hmm. And also, I think uh, it's difficult to people think in the old big centralized plant and how much can I scale that up, whereas with solar you can really do a lot in a short time. And this imagination is sometimes not always there Mm -hmm. that you, you know, this stuff can really grow fast. Yeah. And there I actually liked the IEA in the first paper you referred to, because they basically made it clear just how much you could add, which would be mostly solar, I assume, because when it takes longer Mm -hmm. uh, within one year. So uh, I think that that's, that's really an important point. Um, but on that, I think the Commission did set the right—you uh, know—they emphasized a lot uh, the roofs, the rooftop solar, and all uh, all the areas where you can put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's there. I, for me, the wind is more of a worry because the, the wind needs planning, leads longer lead times, mm-hmm. and also wind's even more complicated. There's some some—you know—we only have. Offshore windmills a bit like in the U.S., there's some parts where there's not not a single one. You would start with the first project, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, these are challenging things. Right. And, on yeah, onshore wind, some people don't like it. You have these distancing rules not so far next to the village. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have that in the U.S. as well, but that really we see in a lot of countries.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of similarities with um, U.S. discussions as well. Yeah. Um, well, we're winding down our time here. This has been a, such a great conversation. I could, I could go on and on. Um, I wanted to circle back and, and just sort of highlight, um, you know, what's, what's giving you guys optimism in this very challenging circumstance, as well as all the complex issues that are yet to be solved? Uh, what's giving you hope when you wake up every day and have to do this work?
1: Do well, we come I mean, across as so depressed? No, 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 no.
0: <laughs> no, no, you guys are very practical. You're looking at the solutions and the problems and the challenges. I just, you know, I as somebody who does the same in my day-to-day, I always like to reflect on, you know, what's, what's keeping me going and, and making me feel heartened about the future.
2: Yeah, I mean, what ma- makes me um, optimistic is the fact that we actually know how to do this we have the technologies that we need it's not like there's this huge challenge and we don't have any solutions we know how to do it the main barrier is um that is standing in the way in the way is um is political will and um is to change um the you know, underlying regulatory and market framework. And once that happens, things change. I mean, I you know, I sometimes look at countries that are way further ahead than most countries in the world. And um, I find that very inspiring you know, to see how countries have transitioned away from fossil fuels in the past um, uh, and it, it does work. I mean, you you, you can look at, um, and of course, people will say Norway is a bad example because they're so wealthy and they have so much oil and gas. But yeah, set, setting that aside for a moment, when you look at what Norway has done, for example, with electric vehicles or with heat pumps, um, they um, yeah, put in place incentives um, and rules uh, to make it easier and more logical for people to adopt heat pumps, electric vehicles and it worked. I mean, Norway um, today, uh, almost all of the cars that are being sold are electric vehicles. Uh, world leading. And when you look at um, the heating market, I think last year 96% of all heating systems sold in Norway were heat pumps. Uh, 96%. That's close to um, complete market saturation. Um, that is you know, unheard of. Um, and when you when you try to replicate that. Um, other countries have shown that they can do it as well Um, of course yeah the the challenge is still there for places that um, have not seen much investment in clean technology don't have a lot of expertise locally but i then i look at poland for example where the offshore wind industry uh, was completely non-existent until a few years back and now there's major plans um, in poland and the state-owned utility PGE is now um, partnering with Ørsted, a you know, major player in offshore wind, Danish company, to build a massive offshore wind farm um, in the Baltic Sea. So these kinds of things are happening even in places where people think, oh, yeah, they're never going to do anything about climate. Poland has a lot of coal set on the system, but they are expanding renewables. Uh, They are also growing their heat pump market massively. Last year, I think 66% growth in the Polish heat pump market. So, even in places that have a bad reputation because they use a lot of coal, change is happening and um, it can happen very quickly. So, I I, I tend to focus on, on the positive aspects. Um, and not just look at globally look at the amount of fossil fuels and, and how terrible it is with emissions. I think we need to focus on the good examples and then try to replicate them, and learn from them and make them even better, and, re- and then basically scale up elsewhere. Um, that that's what keeps me going.
0: That's great, Michaela. How about you?
1: Yeah, I think I guess there's a chance in you know there's this Chinese saying, and the, I don't know their sign is the same. So when when something bad happens it's also always a chance and i think we had really the the climate change and yeah in in europe we had really um you had the, the fires but in europe we had a lot of floods which for the first time really you know showed us in in front of our houses so that was happening then the pandemic and now ukraine so really really shocks and with the result that i think People start to, you know, things were possible, like not going to the office to work anymore. If, if someone had asked you this three years ago, you know, like and now, <laughs> I mean, the IEA publishes the document work from home. <laughs> it, it's amazing what, what was, you know, mm-hmm. and and I guess this shock with Russia. It's also like just that you said people were not aware of that sort of dependency um so i guess there's a chance in this really in this never ending waves of crisis to wake up mm-hmm. to wake up how how we have come to live our lives and mm-hmm. and consume and then basically change that's what i would 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 see from that 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 there's a and that that there's a window of opportunity where you can discuss things that you would have taken for granted forever otherwise
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I would echo all of that. And I would add that, um, you know, as Jan mentioned, we do have the technologies, So we are, you know, 85% of the way there. You know, in the past, it has been a, a challenge looking at the bigger issues at hand. Do we have the technologies? Can we do this? Is it feasible? We've got, you know, a a number of examples out there across the world that we can do this with the technologies we have and they are more efficient. They will save energy, they will save consumers, they will reduce demand and they will create jobs by deploying them writ large. So it's clearly and they make a win-win better What's You that? know, in the end
1: of the day we'll wake up like, how did we do this? This is so much better. Yeah. My heat pump cools. Yeah. I don't have gas anymore at home. I think, you know, at some point yeah. you'll actually realize, wow, not only does it work it actually improves my life.
0: Yeah, exactly. My grandparents had a coal stove in their tiny house and they used that for heating and cooking. And yeah, that was, you know, not that long ago. So we, we can make big changes within a generation or less. Um, well, thank you all so much for being with me today, Jan and Michaela. And thanks for all you're doing. Um, su- super important work out there. Well,
2: thanks for having course. us. Pleasure to be my on the show. You're
1: doing important work over there. <laughs>
0: Well, it's great to chat with you. Uh, Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan energy policy firm delivering high quality research and analysis to help policymakers and regulators pursue a decarbonized energy future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Please continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a five-star review if you like what you're hearing. Helps us expand our reach and our impact. And, of course, tag us on social with hashtag electrify this. As always, a huge thanks to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the audio Inn in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to electrify this. Thank you.